So we've never done any deals that way. Like money has never come to me directly. It's always going to the lawyer, but I hear that people do that. So, you know, it, it was just interesting to hear that you did it. I just wanted to get your experience on, I, I can imagine how stressful that would be because if the deal doesn't close, then you have to give the money back. If you've spent it, then it becomes- And, and I did spend it. I, I believe <laughs> I had some other uh, lines of credit and stuff to pay out for some of my other deals. So I was like, uh-oh, this is not good. Again, I only did it because I was totally green to the wholesaling process. So do not recommend yeah. people to do that. Welcome to episode 10 of the Deals Estate Wholesaling Podcast, where we discuss finding, financing, and facilitating off-market real estate deals. I'm your host, Deji Odunton, and I'm joined today on the show by Austin Yee to discuss and share his knowledge on how to transition from investing into wholesaling. Austin is a full-time real estate investor who's based out of Toronto. He is the founder of the Rise Network a real estate group which has over 7,000 members on Facebook. He's also the co-host of the Rise Investing Podcast, which is one of the leading Canadian real estate investing podcasts. He owns and operates assets under management of over $10 million in investment properties, and he's the co-founder of Ontario Property Deals, a wholesaling company which generated seven figures in revenue in its first year of operation. Now, what do Austin and I discuss in this episode we discuss the steps that you need to take to get into wholesaling. We also discuss how Austin used wholesaling as a tool to quit his nine to five job. And finally, we discuss how to build systems and processes when building your wholesaling business. So you definitely do not want to miss this episode. Be sure to sit back, relax, and listen to the very end. Now, before we dive into the episode, I want to say a big thank you to all our listeners. If you are a fan of this podcast, please hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hi, Austin. Welcome to the Deals Estate Wholesaling Podcast. Hey, appreciate you having me on. Excited to get this uh, to get the ball rolling. Thank you very much. You know, for coming on. It's been long overdue, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> there's been a couple of postponements some on my side some on your side it's been, it's been a mix but we're finally making it happen yeah and i believe this is going to be a fire episode like there's so much going on that i know that you have to share with everyone so it's really really uh interesting for for us to sit down and speak so what's been going on with you man yeah, things are picking up on the wholesaling side of things. I'm sure you probably know, and uh, if you have any realtors listening to this podcast, um, <laughs> quite evident that that things are picking up on the market. A lot of it yeah. seems to be driven by home buyers for the most part. Yeah. I don't know what you're seeing, but a lot of the the demand and the price bidding are for more turnkeyish properties. But yeah. that's obviously a good sign. Um, given how slow things were last year. So True. we're finding our business is, is picking up slowly as well as other wholesalers we've been connecting with. Um, and we've been putting a little bit more emphasis, or at least I've been putting a little bit more emphasis on on fixing and flipping as well. Because um, yeah. I'm sure you run across deals where the margins are pretty solid and some buyers will not move on it. So yeah. nowadays, if a buyer's not moving on something where there's a lot of meat on the bone, I'll just take it down myself. So a lot has changed and yeah. I'm sure a lot will continue the change within the next couple of months and years. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's actually good news 
that there is renewed interest from first-time home buyers because that's essentially an indirect customer of ours, right? Because as a wholesaling company, you sell to a flipper who is essentially flipping it to sell to a first-time home buyer. So once those guys start to come back into the market, it's essentially good news, good news for us. Totally agree. Totally agree with you. And it, and it, we've been pivoting sort of our, our marketing strategy. I'm sure we're going to get into it into more yeah. detail on this podcast, but exactly what you're saying, first-time home buyers, home buyers in general. So we've been trying to get leads that are a little bit more turnkeyish and yep. and shopping them around to realtors who may have buyer clients. Whereas before, never needed to do that, right? It was yeah. nice and easy. Throw it on the mailer list. A bunch of people reach out. But now you actually have to put in work, even more work on the disposition side than you do on 100%. the acquisition side. So for us, we've actually had positive experiences working with realtors. So even last year, quite a number of our deals were wholesaled to realtors. So they would bring their clients and their clients would usually pay higher than what maybe a flipper would pay. So we've always had that relationship with realtors. More interestingly now, not just finding realtors on the disposition side, we are actively looking for realtors on the acquisition side. So the last deal that we wholesaled was actually a realtor who brought the deal to us. So it was like an exclusive listing. The realtor brought the deal to us. And the person who bought the deal also was brought by a realtor. So as I shared with you um, privately, we had a realtor on the acquisition side, a realtor on the disposition side. So the documentation was interesting to go through. Like it was a lot of documentation just to get the deal over the line. But you know, it's 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 also what we are seeing in the market where there's quite a number of properties that don't want to go on the MLS and mm-hmm. they have exclusive listings with realtors. So those are channels that we're also looking to explore. Yeah, no, absolutely. We've been doing sort of the same thing on the uh, on the Toronto side of things, reaching out to realtors with expired listings. I think you're doing it in a much more interesting fashion. We're not <laughs> going to give your secrets away, but uh, I, I I like what you're doing, and it, and it goes to show and it works out. It is a grind. I will say, working with realtors is not always the easiest, especially if they don't know what wholesaling is or not familiar with assignment. A lot of them don't, for the most part, especially yeah. when their main clientele are home buyers. Yeah, and so. It, it, it is definitely an upward battle. And when they see that assignment fee, sometimes it's off-putting because some banks don't finance the assignment fees. True. So it's even, it's even more money uh, down for them. Like I agree with you. There's definitely an education piece. Like for this particular deal, the explanations that I've had to make at every turn for every single thing I do, I have to explain. I explain the contracts. I explain what it means, why I'm doing it this way, why this is the process, why it's different from the MLS. So it's like a little bit of hand-holding but as you said, you know, in the market that we found ourselves, this is an additional channel. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We're just we're just trying numerous things and and, and seeing what sticks. But uh, yeah, dude, it's it's going to be a lot more pivoting, I imagine. Cool, man. So I know, like, for everyone that has been listening to you, they are wondering, you know, who is this person that um, they're just speaking with? So maybe you want to introduce yourself, let people know who you are. I did a bit of introduction at the start, but it will be helpful for you to share a bit about yourself and how your journey in real estate started. Yeah, absolutely. So I started on the real estate investing side before I got into wholesaling. So I'll give a little bit of an intro on how I got into investing. Okay. Um, I, I started investing in real estate at the end of 2018. I want to say I closed my first property around December 2018, which isn't a great time to close, by the way, um, because you know contractors are not really available and you spend one month doing nothing during the holidays. <laughs> um, but yeah, I got into it because I had about $40,000 saved. I didn't like my full-time job. So I was trying to build uh, passive income um, okay. on the side uh, through through buying real estate. I uh, ran across the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and just kind of took the leap of faith with that $40,000. I'm, I'm based in Toronto and so yeah. couldn't afford anything here. Um, so I ended up buying in Windsor. Uh, people 
who know my story, I, I don't want to bore them, but I'll, I'll do a quick summary. I got screwed every single step of the way throughout Whoa. my first property, right? Working with the wrong realtor, working with the wrong contractor, um, things going over budget, timelines expanding. Um, however, I was fortunate such that I was investing in an upward market. And yeah. so it's almost like the market sort of bailed me out and I was able to refi my property within three to four months. Okay. And then I was able to keep that going to continue scaling my assets. So as I was working full-time in RBC, I was acquiring more and more rental properties and documenting my journey completely on social media. Then it evolved to joint ventureships. Then more properties started being acquired. But I quickly realized that my wealth was going higher and higher and higher, but not necessarily my cash flow. The cash flow went up, but you know, like things happen with rental properties. So you make a thousand dollars in cash flow, and then another month it goes away. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't something I realized that I could I could live off of. And for deals that I didn't want to close myself, whether that be I had too much going on or just didn't fit my criteria, I started to wholesale, and and that was kind of the introduction that that got me into that business. Oh wow, well that's really interesting. So how was your wholesaling journey when you eventually started? Like, how did that compare to the real estate investing experience? Yeah, so for me, for 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 most investors, I recommend sourcing your own deals. That's how you're gonna get the best <laughs> deals, right? You yeah. cut the realtor out of the picture, and honestly, I hate to say it, but you cut the wholesaler out of the picture, right? If you can source your own deals and you're willing to put that sweat equity in, yeah. you're gonna be rewarded massively. And that's what I was doing when I was starting off investing. I was just, it was zero money marketing strategy. So I just went out and network with every single person I could. So yeah. I would go down to Windsor almost every other weekend, connect with other investors. And uh, one investor connected me with a homeowner that didn't want to list on the MLS, got an off-market deal that way. Kijiji, I was going very hard on Kijiji. Now it's a little bit overplayed. Everyone's doing Kijiji. But prior, I would just refresh every hour to see what was (laughs) put on there. Um, I would put my own ads on there. I would have people who are boots on the ground who just send me over leads and I kick them back referral fees. But it was just like all hustle and grind. And I would get deals that way, some of it through exclusive listing with realtors as well. Um, but but a lot of a lot of time and dedication put into building the boots on the ground. It's not necessarily scalable because keep yep. in mind that was all in one city, right? Sure. For me to do that in another city Lord knows how much massive. time. Exactly, exactly. It, it, it's a lot of time dedication. But because I was investing and my mindset was to buy these deals myself, I didn't mind putting in all of that work. And um, going into my first wholesale deal, it was off. It was a deal off of Kijiji. Um, it was a three unit in Windsor. Um, I already had a bunch of projects going on in the pipeline with joint venture partners. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to add another one. I decided, let me try to wholesale. I definitely was familiar with what wholesaling is. I'm sure a lot of people know what it is, but I didn't understand the mechanics that go into wholesaling, right? Um, So it's a little bit different than being an investor. So when I'm I'm an investor and I I put offers down, I don't put an assignment clause, right? I'm going to close on this myself. No big deal, right? Um, And so when I wrote up the contract, I didn't put an assignment clause in there. So that was one thing that that posed uh, issues. Second, I didn't know that you needed a lawyer on the the assignment side, right? I knew how to fill out an assignment agreement, because I purchased a wholesale deal from someone else before. So I had their assignment agreement. Yeah. I didn't know they were working with a lawyer or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> so I got that deal under contract um, and I waived the conditions before I even found a buyer. Um, probably oh, not wow. a smart idea. Okay. <laughs> I knew as a backup though, I could raise the capital for it. I didn't got want it. to because I had so much going on. 
but I knew I, I had investors in the pipeline. So it wasn't the absolute end of the world, right? Okay. Um, so I found a buyer who was interested in it, bought it sight unseen, $20,000 fee. I had them pay me the $20,000 fee directly. Yeah, okay. didn't know that there was any lawyers involved, right? <laughs> okay. So as soon as I signed, I was like, oh, like, please give me the $20,000. <laughs> I they, I don't think they knew the process as well. They're kind of trusting me. So they just gave me the money. And then two days before closing, um, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I think, oh yes, I do. One of the tenants or two of the tenants were not allowing an appraiser to go through. Oh, and wow. so obviously they needed financing to do the deal. And I was like, oh, what do I do? Like, I'm not working with a lawyer, uh, all of that mm-hmm. stuff. So I was just panicking and scrambling. Um, and it was too late, honestly, for me to reach out to a lawyer at that point with two days <laughs> of closing. Um, so not a good strategy. I hope, prayed for the best. Um, <laughs> we got an extension on it. It ended up yep. closing. Okay. A lot went wrong there, though. Like, as you know, as you, <laughs> that, that's the complete opposite way that you should go wholesaling. So with hindsight... Would you say now that you know the process, you would still recommend that wholesale fees be passed on to you personally? No, 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 no. That's not how it's supposed to be done. Here's the thing is, is like, think about it. Like if you're buying a private deal from, uh, from a seller, yeah. what if they wanted to hold the deposit? No. What if they spend the deposit? What if you back out of the deal? It's like, okay, this deal isn't good for me anymore. I'm not going to waive the conditions. You've already given them the money. Right. Similar situation on the other way around. If you are a buyer of a property, um, you I I would definitely feel uncomfortable giving a wholesaler money. Right. Because exactly. They're not going to they may their service may drop. Right. You don't know. Their service may drop. They may go MIA if things pick like, you know, things get messy. Yeah. They already have the money in their possession. Um, So you always want to have a lawyer involved in transaction and give that money to a lawyer. So we've never done any deals that way. Like money has never come to me directly. It's always going to the lawyer, but I hear that people do that. So, you know, it it was just interesting to hear that you did it. I just wanted to get your experience on, I I can imagine how stressful that would be because if the deal doesn't close, then you have to give the money back. If you've spent it, then it becomes- And I I did spend it. I I believe (laughs) I had some other uh, lines of credit and stuff to pay out for some of my other deals. So I was like, "Uh uh-oh, this is not good. Again, I only did it because I was totally green to the wholesaling process. I do not recommend people to do that. Always get a lawyer to represent you on an assignment (laughs) and always put in an assignment condition too because that was another sort of contention. The buyer didn't want to let me assign it. And after a lot of convincing, they were like, okay, fine, you can assign it. So (laughs) that's another tidbit. So right now in our assignment agreements, we would put the assignment, within the APS, we'd put the, the assignment clause. In the assignment agreements, you know, we would say it's been assigned firm. It's non-refundable, but it's only refundable if the deal falls through due to the seller's fault. Yeah. So we go about it in the exact same manner now in our business. And on the seller side with the assignment agreement, we always put in that um, we will be relieved of all liability. 100%. Once the assignment has been assigned over. However, we've actually been getting a little bit of pushback when we deal with realtors or with with lawyers on that 100 yeah we try our best to keep it there but in times where it's low risk um we're okay with leaving it there all it means it's our responsibility to find a better quality buyer but it has to be a low risk deal in times when we've done that where we got massive pushback and there wasn't any way forward two things that we've always done is one we would put an additional clause saying that like should we be forced to close we can extend by an additional X number of days. So that gives us time to find our footing. And then once we don't have the luxury of getting out of the deal, I'll just speak with my broker, you know, 
and have backup financing in place. So yeah. a combination of those two things just helps to de-risk the situation. Exactly. Exactly. Totally agree. Cool. So you mentioned that you, you would recommend new investors to find their own deals now that they're starting. I know that like wholesaling essentially was what helped you to quit your job. So yeah. can you speak more about that with respect to how that was able to replace your income? Because a lot of conversations around replacing income is buy a couple of rental properties, let the cash flow replace your expenses. But with using wholesaling to replace your income, how did you sort of calculate what was needed to get you out of the job and the frequency of deals that were required to essentially sustain that lifestyle? Yeah, definitely. So cash flow from rental properties is definitely a must for for investors, right? It helps you go through good times and bad times, but it's difficult to live off of because of how variable it is. For example, variable interest rates went up. A lot of people's cash flow has been completely eroded. Some of them went into the negative. If you are living off that cash flow, you're going to be forced to sell a, a few properties, that's for sure. Uh, and I quickly realized that as well. My cash flow was always variable. Things built up in the bank account. But then when something happened with the property, whether that be a non-payment of rent, whether that be a tenant turnover, and I now have to spend a bunch of money repainting the place and getting a new tenant in there, the cash flow that I accumulated pretty much disappeared for the most part. Yeah. And especially if you're doing the burr. Uh, which means that you're refinancing at current market value, at the appraisal value. Essentially, that's the same thing as going on the MLS and buying a deal for market value. You're going to get the same cash flow. And usually when you buy a deal at market value on the MLS, cash flow is pretty low, a few hundred bucks, right? So when you're refinancing all of the time, your cash flow goes lower and lower. So I couldn't live off of that, but it was a great equity builder. I will say I'd probably made, not probably, I have made tons more equity and in addition to my net worth than wholesaling ever has. However, you can't always live off of equity. And that's where you complement the wholesaling side of things. For me, I'm a pretty frugal individual. Um, I don't spend a ton of money. Um, I do have expenses such as my primary residence mortgage and I have a a car loan now. Um, But it's not like my expenses are more than five, $6,000 a month. So I live a pretty yeah. lean lifestyle all in all. Um, all I needed was an active business to replace that income and allow me to get savings. During that time, during my first wholesale deal, first and foremost, that was about a $20,000 assignment fee, Yeah. right? So that would have paid for three to four months of my living expenses. I didn't need to do a ton of wholesale deals in order to replace my full-time income. Plus there's our risk premium. When you're you're jumping into the entrepreneurial landscape, at least for me, I'm a very prudent individual. I need to make more than I was making in my full-time job. Not equal, but more. Because there's that risk premium of of, um, being an entrepreneur, having unstable, unsteady income. Things can change at the snap of a finger. Um, So... When I was doing wholesaling slash, I was also doing some wholesaling as well with deals I'd close on and list. I was making more money than I was making from my full-time job. So I decided to step it up a notch. My deal flow wasn't consistent. That was the one thing that scared me because I was doing all sweat equity work. You probably know when you're calling up realtors, when you're going on Kijiji, when you're doing all of these low-cost marketing strategies or no-cost because a lot of them are free – you do get good deals, but they're not consistent. It's not like you're getting a deal a week. You may be getting a deal every three, four months, 
and they could be really solid deals. But part of being an entrepreneur is for me, at least like having a little bit more consistency. And that's when I partnered up with, with my wholesaling partner, Will and McGill, who was doing wholesale. He, he has a, he had a busy, not had, he has a busy, busy job uh, in the tech industry. So he was doing wholesaling as well, new in the industry, but he was doing uh, the paid marketing because he yep. had the funds from a solid full-time job yeah. and I was more experienced with the like the grind and the hustle mentality of, of getting my own leads but I know knew the next next logical step is yeah. to partner up or to learn from someone who one obviously has the sales experience him being a sales leader but two understands how to generate leads using paid marketing sources and that's when we sort of partnered up and uh, the math made sense right like he was getting about a deal a month um, with sort of a lean marketing budget, if we could pool our resources, if we could increase the marketing budget, we would, and based on our track record that we've already had, yeah, I could easily end up replacing my full-time job. So it was a no brainer transition for me to, to move over and dedicate my hours towards building the business, which ended up paying off. Oh, wow. Fantastic. That was a fantastic breakdown. Thanks for that, man. So looking back, if you had to do it all again, is there anything that you would do more of? And anything you would do less of? That that's a good question. I think honestly, the way I went went about it is the way I would still go about it if I was a similar situation that I was before. A lot of people may have only ten or fifteen thousand dollars in savings when they're getting into real estate. So wholesaling, a lot of people consider a, a um a cheap strategy. Yeah. Not necessarily true. It could cost as much money as you want. I could, and you probably know, you could blow through 15 grand in a few weeks, 100%. right? Uh, it's very easy to do so. So it is, it could be as expensive as you want it to be. It could be as cheap as you want it to be. For a lot of investors who are looking to get into wholesaling, I don't think it makes sense to take that money and then throw it into marketing. And the reason being is, is because there are several skill sets in wholesaling. One of them is negotiation. Um, being able to qualify leads um, and 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 just interpersonal skills. If you are starting off in wholesaling and you're spending your ten or fifteen k in marketing, you're practicing on building those skill sets on expensive leads that yeah. come across your table. Um, I always encourage people who are looking to get into it to practice and build your skill set on low cost or no cost leads. Right? Yes. Um, exactly. So. I, I always encourage people to go on Kijiji and even if a thousand people have viewed a Kijiji listing, call it and just sharpen your skill set, right? Because when you start transitioning into paid lead sources, it's not practice anymore. You're in the yeah. big leagues. You need to make every single lead count. Whereas again, with the with 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 the low cost strategies, not necessary. And we can go into some of the low cost strategies that that um, we've sort of been taken back on as, yep. as our wholesaling company. Um, as fees started to lean out, the logic behind is, is our assignment fees in general, as well as most wholesalers are starting to lean out. Before yep. getting a 50K plus fee was a normality. You would get at least one of those a month, right? Yes. Now getting a 50K plus wholesale fee is a celebration. That's a pretty big <laughs> deal, right? Yeah. Um, so we saw our average assignment fees change quite drastically. And obviously marketing costs have gone up. That's a combination you don't yeah, want. Yeah, there's severe margin <laughs> compression now. Yeah, yeah. So your margins are are tightening really drastically. And once you get the deal under contract, it's about finding a buyer and that's no easy feat as well. So we want to put more, we're, we're still doing paid stuff, but we're putting back an emphasis on, on low cost strategy. Some of the things that we're doing, as we alluded to earlier in the podcast is 
just picking up the phone and, and cold calling, right? Cold calling realtors with expired listings, yeah. cold calling stale MLS listings, um, taking advantage of that realtor marketplace. Yeah. Um, so that's one way that we've been going about it. Door knocking is another one, right? So simply just looking at properties that are run down, knocking on the door if no one's there, knock on the neighbors, ask them what's going on, leave a letter there, right? See yeah. if you can get a hold of them. Or work with the mortgage agent to go get the purview of the house, see who owns it, send a mailer there, right? Like being a little bit more creative takes a lot more time and dedication. Um, but these are the steps that we're taking. So expired listings has been a big one. Um, door knocking, Kijiji, we're still doing Kijiji and we actually got a lead off of Kijiji. Um, not very frequent, not the best leads all the time, but something is better than nothing. Um, taking a long-term approach on a digital website. So we've been doing... Uh, SEO, so a lot of a lot of articles that we've been writing up, search engine optimization, learning about that. It's free to to, to do SEOs, right? Google Ads is another thing, but it's free to optimize your website, um, creating backlinks and doing what you can to rank better. It's a numbers game at the end of the day, and yeah. it's free, which is why we have our bird dogs um, who are assisting us in that. They're learning how to negotiate and build their skill set, but they just got to put in the time. Thanks for actually mentioning that because th that's a segue to one of the questions that I had. A lot of the strategies that you've mentioned you know, really speaks about actively going to source deals. I remember that you had a bird dog program at some point and you mentioned that you have bird dogs. So could you share with us, you know, what that terminology means and what do bird dogs typically do and how do they typically find deals? Yeah. So bird dogs are essentially uh, individuals who get leads and then pass leads on to wholesalers. Uh, and the wholesalers will take it from the beginning to the end process after that, right? So they'll deal with the negotiation, get it under contract, and then wholesale it. And the bird dogs would get a percentage kickback of the fee. We run our program a little bit differently. So for a lot of people, they want to get into wholesaling. Um, but they may not have the confidence or, or the skill set to do so, but they want to work their way um, towards that, towards yep. being able to lock up deals themselves, right? And that's what our bird dog program essentially is. We work with people who uh, want to get into wholesaling, maybe part-time. Uh, the ideal candidate is probably already working full-time and this yep. is kind of a side hustle for them. Um, they may not have a lot of skill sets around negotiation, or maybe they do, but they haven't translated it over yet into real estate. So yep. we groom them into our talk tracks, conversations that we have with sellers. We give them some recordings that we have with sellers. We walk them through the questions to ask, how to determine motivation, max allowable offers. Um, that's actually the part that weeds a lot of people out is the max allowable <laughs> offers. Um, it takes it takes people a very long time to wrap their head around what to offer um, sellers. So we basically walk um, these individuals through all of that and, and, and show them how to source their own leads. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the responsibility relies on them to actually put in the reps and the work um, and to go out and try to hustle. I will say that in our bird dog program, probably 90% of the people end up fall, falling out because, you know, just maybe they, it's not right for them. Yeah. They expect fast results um, or they just end up losing interest in it. And then we have the 10% who does really well. Um, yeah. And so we have a bird dog right now who's just like hustling and grinding. Uh, unfortunately, obviously, market conditions are a little bit wonky. But that being said, he still made, I want to say in like three to four months, he still made like 
eight thousand dollars net on on his side of fees which is good sort of yeah. uh side income right and i've told him like he has the skill sets to rock it honestly um and i've told him look when the market picks back up these marginal deals that we have or these deals that they're going to may blow. not be able to move like you're going to make tons of money because you are just crushing it right now uh, and zero dollars in marketing right so everything yeah. is kind of the the deal sources that we talked about before, just putting yeah. in the hustle and the work. But uh, that's essentially what we do in our bird dogging program. But the true definition is just someone to get a lead and maybe they don't want to negotiate it or do the do the active work, just pass it on to a wholesaler and get a kickback fee as a result. Yeah, I agree with you that the the skill sets that you build doing wholesaling is critical. And when the market picks, you'd be able to leverage that skill sets to do you know even better deals with higher Absolutely. margins. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You're you're exactly right. Um, right now, what's holding I think most wholesalers back is is the buyers list side of things. It is it is pretty difficult as we discussed to find buyers for deals. It is very much possible we are still moving deals, but obviously not at the rate um, that that we would like. But yeah. as soon as that formula changes, where the buyers start coming back. I'm sure like you and I are lucky. The acquisition side isn't necessarily the biggest, biggest problem, right? Um, it, I guess it is a problem when you think about how much margin you need to have in the deal now to even get a buyer 100%. interested. But as the market picks back up on the buyer side, it resolves a lot of the sort of sort of issues that wholesalers are, are facing now, right? Like the deal yeah. flow will start picking back up because we do I have deals. But some of them are just not right for the buyers who are searching right now. The buyers who are searching right now want an absolute steal. And oh man, more, more, tell me about more it. power to them though. If I was like I'm being on the buying <laughs> side, I get it. Like I I am on the hunt as well, and I am only gonna take down the best deals. Yeah. To your point, it's like there's there's fewer buyers, so they want to ensure that whatever opportunities they, they take down is absolutely worth their time because you have the luxury to choose. So when the market picks back up and when the market was booming um 2021 deals that were not necessarily home runs you could still sell them because maybe even if you make a mistake with your numbers the market was up was going up so you would still get bailed out but now <laughs> if you miss your numbers in this market or at least in 2022 you would get crushed so that's probably one of the reasons why you know buyers were really aggressive with their offers they'd rather wait for a deal where they either have multiple exits or they are buying extremely discounted deals. I, I will say this is a lot of it is a psychology game, right? Uh, it's a psychology of investors, not only real estate investors, investors in general. Um, I see some phenomenal deals from wholesalers. I've sent out pretty great deals. Just for example, like one of the deals that we sent out, we didn't end up finding a buyer. Um, we got it under contract. We marketed it at, I believe it was like 470 K, um, as is value 550 K. Um, no one ended up putting an offer, very little interest. Our, as is value was on the dot. Uh, just a week later, we let go of the deal. A week later, they sold it on the MLS. It was a little bit over 550 K, right? Ooh, so 470, yeah. 550, that's 80K spread. We were not bullshitting when we say it, when we said 80K undervalued. Yeah, there are deals yeah. like that as well. It's just buyer psychology at the end of the day. True. Investors want to enter the market when other investors are coming in. People don't want to take the first step into it. And I get it. Like, even for me as well, it's not always the easiest thing. You like, you, <laughs> as much as we say don't time the market, 
you almost kind of do time the market, especially when you're flipping. You didn't make sure you enter in and exit at a at a decent time, right? Yeah. But that being said, there are opportunities out there. Um, and so to your point where you say buyers want really discounted deals, I think it's like buyers need to feel like they're getting a discounted deal, right? right. And so if I market something, I don't know, let's say probably around as is value, and then a buyer comes in, let's say I marketed at 550K, like, you know, the deal I was talking about yep. and a buyer came in and beat me down in negotiation to like 470. They may feel like they have a great deal versus than just buying it at 470 flat right away. Right. Yeah. So okay. it, it is buyer psychology for a lot of it. And we need that to change around because there are deals out there, right? There are fantastic deals out there. Just buyers are not there. And so what I've done to pivot is I've been flipping deals myself, right? Um, so I've been betting on myself. I've been betting on the fact that we have good deals. Um, can't buy every deal, obviously, but buying yeah. the deals where I feel there, there's decent margin and, and and not much interest. And there's room for me to renegotiate with the seller to even build in a little bit more cushion for myself. So that's kind of the strategy I've been taking now as well to build another income stream. And so far, so good. Okay. So to that point, I noticed that towards the beginning of the year, you know, you, you did a couple of deals at a stretch. So in line with taking down some of these deals, you know, how were you essentially underwriting these deals? Because I know you mentioned that the max allowable offer is usually like the critical piece, you know, so how do you sort of do the underwriting, the analysis in a market like this? Underwriting deals is is not extremely complicated. There are only a couple of things that you can really control. One, your purchase price. What are you entering the deal at? Two, the exit price. What are you selling the property at? And three, renovation slash holding costs, right? Um, the risk factor outside of the numbers is days on market. How long is days on market? Is your property unique? So on and so forth. So outside of the quantitative aspect, my qualitative aspect is one, uh, I need to buy properties that are entry-level homes, right? More demand for entry-level homes. I don't yeah. want to be caught with the luxury product. So that's yeah. one one of the criteria I have. Um, the second one is, is that uh, the days on market need to be pretty strong in that market or at least in that neighborhood, right? Um, because the last thing I want is to get a good deal. Number should pan out, but I'm waiting two months to find a buyer. And that's investor psychology. One month in, I'm going to take a lowball offer. Right. Yeah. Because I don't know when the next higher offer will come. And maybe it'll come next month where I get exactly what I want and I make like a 50, 60, 70 K profit, but I don't know. And as long yeah. as I'm leveraged, I'm motivated to sell it quicker. Right. Yeah. It's more worrisome yeah. than investor psychology. So um, that's the other criteria in terms of the quantitative aspect. Um, it's with my ARV, my exit value, I depreciate it. Right. I'm not appreciating. I'm not assuming a flat market. You take a look at the comps and you even take a lower sort of comp if possible if it's it's hard to do so but if possible if you can see properties that are selling at a million dollars and let's say they still need 70 or 80k in renovations you can set your arv at a million dollars and be conservative because you know that there's a property that sold for a million dollars that is in good condition but it could be a lot better so that's the things that i like to look for for my exit value or I'll look for turnkey properties and discount it a little bit in the case that yeah. the market corrects, right? Rental cost is rental cost. You get that quote from contractors. You add in whatever buffer that you want for things that could or could not go wrong. And then you work backwards to find what is your entry purchase price. So really, it's just sensitizing the exit value and yeah. just making sure the days on market 
and all of that aligns so it would be a quick flip you made a very fine point um the arv and that was one thing that we were doing as well which is the second thing you said where we take the arv and then we discount it immediately so we assume that it would suffer lower and as i shared with you there was a deal that we did where we had it we, we expected to sell at 500 for example and we sold for like 430. that was a massive variance from what we expected it was a 70k variance but thankfully we got it so low that we still made some money but if we had not gotten it that low for sure would have lost money so discounting the arv significantly as you said is a way to sort of buffer your exits i will say it's harder to do now with the market picking back up you, I, everyone else missed the boat on being able to do that. If there was a time to do that, still probably possible. It's a little bit tougher, that's for sure. A lot tougher, that's for sure, in the current environment, depending on what yeah. market you're in. The prime time to do that was last year, Max Fear, yeah. right? And I did participate in the market with Max Fear. Did I feel comfortable doing these deals? <laughs> From a numbers perspective, yeah, but I was nervous. I, I never go into any sort of deal feeling fully confident. I feel like people who do that are the people who got themselves in really sticky, murky waters in, in, yeah. in, in 2022. Every deal I go to, every home run deal I went through, I go in the deal and I still feel a little bit worried. I don't know about <laughs> you, man, but it, it's just, it's a feeling. So I bought four properties um, in October, November, December last year um, because it was peak fear. Um, and fortunately markets picked back up. I didn't even if the market didn't pick back up. My underwriting made a lot of sense and yep. I decided to pull the trigger. There was no competition. I was able to negotiate a deal. I was able to negotiate insane terms and I took advantage of that condition, right? Again, investor psychology. Yeah. 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 Well, fantastic. So we've done a lot about acquisition. So on the dispositions and I know you spoke about that from your, your end, how important or how significant do you think it is to have a, a big buyers list or what would you say are the advantages of, of having a significant buyers list from your standpoint? Yeah, of course. Having a big buyers list is, is important. Having a quality buyers list is even more important. I take a look at the stats. Uh, like our buyers list is pretty big. We have, want to say it is close to 8,000 people. And I look at the percentage of people who open the deals. Uh, I don't want to go into the stats and stuff, but it is less than 50% of the people who actually open the emails, right? So um, obviously it's still a lot of people who are having eyes on it, yeah. but I think if I think a quality buyers list uh, is more important. Having active investors, investors who are act actively making transactions in the current uh, in the current market. But of course, a bigger buyers list matters, especially in a time when the market improves because you have yeah. competition. If you have a small buyers list, you know, let less competition all in all. It's almost like the MLS. You want as many people to have eyes on the deal as possible. Yeah. Um, and even if there's a buyer who comes and lowballs you, appreciate it. Take their feedback. Understand it. When you have a smaller buyers list, probability of that happening is, is, is much, much less. But also keep in mind with the smaller buyers list, you can also cater. There's like advantages and disadvantages. You can cater more towards your investor's need. You can actually pick up the phone and call people down your buyers list. For me to do that with my buyer, I don't even know where to begin, right? <laughs> I'd be like, where, like, how do I filter? Like, who do I know who to call, not to call? Yeah. With the, with the more limited buyers list, it's easier to do that filter and make these phone calls. Like, what price do you need for me to get this under contract for it to make sense for you? So I know people with buyers lists of less than a thousand people, 1,500 people who are still moving deals, right? Yeah. So I would say in this market, obviously big buyers, this is important quality of buys and relationships with your buyers 
are more important, right? Realtors, for example, things that you're doing, things that I'm doing now. Most realtors are not on a wholesaler's buyers list. They don't know what the hell wholesalers are, right? So it's almost like all of us are sort of figuring out how to get in contact with wholesalers, educate them on the process, and, yeah. and seeing if they have a buyer force because they have the bigger, biggest buyers list. They exactly. have first time home buyers and all of that. So it's, you know, like I don't want, it is important. I'm not going to say that's not important. It's extremely important during an upside market to create that bidding war and competition. Yeah. But now, beneficial, yes, but it is not the be all end all. There are people with significantly smaller buyers lists who are putting in the time and effort with people on their list, making that phone call to our moving stuff. So that's my yeah. two cents on it. So to your point, I think I tend to agree with you because I also find that it also, it also varies maybe per location. Like if you operate in one location and you have a thousand buyers in that one location, you probably have more concentration of, of, of focus from that, from those investors. Versus you operate across Ontario and then you have 5,000, right? I've gotten feedback from a few investors that were like, Hey, I invest in Windsor. But I see you selling deals from Ottawa. Like I'm, ne I'm never going to buy a deal in Ottawa. So if you have a million investors, but you are sending deals in a different city from where they invest in, you just have them on your list. They're just going to view it, but they are never going to buy. Interestingly, you mentioned something about realtors, and I remember that when the market was a bit stressed last year, um, there was a deal that we had in Windsor. I think two deals, and we were trying to move it with realtors. So we probably onboarded like 200 realtors on our email list. So we went online, got like the details from realtor.ca, called some of them, uploaded some of the details into our buyers list, and we were blasting our emails. And they were seeing it, but we're getting a lot of unsubscribes. Hey, take me off, take me off. Some would ask, but again, because the market was coming down like mid-2022, it was tougher. But if you had to do it today, probably would be easier because more, more buyers are coming to the market. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's one thing to say... So I guess what you were doing is you were just adding a bunch of people. I did that strategy too. I don't recommend it for most people. And, and the reason being is, is because it, it could get you in hot water. Is it on site? Not necessarily. Um, you need to get consent to add people to, to your list. And we've yeah. almost got banned um, from MailChimp. By, we've added like 2,000 realtors uh, <laughs> and, in one day. And there are so many people unsubscribing. <laughs> okay. And there were so many people who clicked on spam that MailChimp had to review our account. Um, it's good. Like, honestly, if you have the time, effort, and you can outsource this to some sort of virtual assistant or something, the best way you go about it is actually picking up the phone, calling, building a relationship, and then adding them in. Very long process. What we do is, is that if we know we're about to get a deal under contract in Ottawa yeah. and where it's going to hit the market in two or three days, so it's going to hit our buyers list in two or three days, we spend those two or three days starting to add the realtors to our list. Okay. And then so they get the deal sent to them. Um, right. So we try to do it before versus when the deal is already out. Um, and has it worked for us? Not yet, but everything is right now. Everyone is just scrambling and testing new things. I don't know if you see a different wholesalers list, but there's different dispo strategies. Some people say, reach out to us and tell us what you want. Yeah. No one was doing that before. <laughs> Another one is like, fill out our survey, um, $50 gift card. If you fill out a survey, just to see who's active and who's not actively investing, um, make us an offer, no price. Um, just throw in. An that was offer. interesting. There's, you know, like make yeah. us an offer, no price. I'm like, whoa, that's bullshit. Yeah. There is so many 
different unique strategies and no one knows what they're doing perfectly but that's part of the beauty and the stress of it is is that you don't know what works and what doesn't work until you just try it and when you figure out what works um you can keep that secret to yourself right and you'll have that competitive advantage or if it's like public everyone will still start copying you after okay so now Um, i I was about to share how i also this last one with realtors but um yeah it's definitely interesting like in addition to our wholesale list we had to engage over two thousand realtors in the in the area that the deal was in and we engaged them directly so it wasn't via email so we got direct responses from them and were able to assign to a client that came from one of those realtors so the buyer wasn't from our wholesale list. It was directly from the engagement channel that we used to, to reach out to those realtors. So to your point, like this is the first time that we are disposing a deal off that channel. And the plan is to see how we can build that up to see if, if it's something that's scalable, right? There's obviously the legwork that needs to be done because you are working with realtors and, you know, there's more documentation, but you know, if it works once and then it works twice, then maybe you could sort of build out a process around it. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly, man. Couldn't uh, couldn't agree more. What you're doing is is pretty unique, um, and it it just goes to show. Put your biases aside, because my thought with that is is that the realtors, what if they find out and they just cut you out of the deal? It's possible, possible. Or there's both two realtors. Like, wait, why do we need you? Just back out of the deal, or I'm not going to do the deal. I'm going to wait till it expires. Right? Very possible for that to happen, but it didn't happen. That that's yeah. right. Like you just got to see There was a lot of documentation, sticks. though. A lot of documentation. Like <laughs> yeah. there was there was a lot. So documentation on on both sides of the of of the spectrum. So yeah, to your point, you could easily get caught out. But once you have documentation on both sides and you're sort of protected, then even if they know that oh, there's a realtor on this side, there's a realtor on this side, you know, it, but it's not it's not an it's not an MLS deal. But there's two realtors. Oh, what's happening here? And you sort of explain, but you have your documentation in place. You can't really get caught out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cool. Cool. Yeah, man. Like we've spoken extensively. Um, Before we let you go, we usually have a question that we ask everyone before we end the show. And it's our question of the show. And it's really around your greatest L in real estate and what you learned from it. Does it have to be wholesaling or could it be? um... Um, So it would be interesting if you shared one for wholesaling and, okay. one, and just one general one. Okay, let, let's talk about wholesaling. Um, I'm not going to say it's the greatest error. I'm going to say it's a learning experience. And so so one of them is, is that we're relatively new wholesalers and we've had a very successful first year. When I was getting into wholesaling with Whalen, we spent a ton of money on marketing, um, a lot money that we didn't even have if that made sense right like would take from our personal funds and throw it in and we're seeing great returns on it and wholesaling is a lagging business such that you spend the money now you get paid in three or four months when the deal closes so when you start off it could be pretty tight crash cash crunch um and we were consistently making great fees but the issue that we ran across was alignment of cash flow in, in the business cash in cash out which is really the lifeline of the operations of the business. Yeah, Yeah. that's the important part to manage. That being said, we had a great first year and we scaled up pretty quickly. We had multiple people on our team. We had multiple VAs and we started moving people on our team from variable compensation to fixed compensation. And the reason being is because it makes a lot of sense in a market where you're generating tons of fees. Yeah, yes. I would rather pay someone 70 or 80K to handle dispositions and you get 1% on 
of the assignment fee, right? Versus then straight up giving you 15 to 20% of every assignment fee. So we're taking that approach where we started fixing costs and we're hiring aggressive. So we had, we had several acquisitions reps in which we had to spend marketing on each one. So you think every acquisition rep, you spend 6K a month on them. They each handle a specific region over multiple of them. That's that's a lot of money in marketing. We switched over a rep, two reps into base salary, disposition cool. into base, and then and then bonus. And it was going decently well, of course, right? Because our margins improved until the market just completely flipped around. And all of the sudden, all of the sudden, that bites us in the ass because we have fixed cost of tens of thousands of dollars, right? Um, and that fixed cost could be money that is spent into marketing. Exactly. Let's say you have $30,000 in fixed salaries and all this other stuff. Uh, you, you're going to be terrified to spend another 10K in marketing because your fixed is so high and you we're not getting returns at this point. Like deals are not moving at this point because the yeah. market was peak fear. And so we are spending money in marketing, not getting returns. Like, oh shit, we're in a predicament, right? Like we have to try to switch people back into variable, take all of that fix, throw it into marketing, right? But people don't want that when they know what's happening with the condition exactly. of the market. So we had to do a lot of repositioning, reanalyzing, restructuring an organization of our business. So that was a huge learning lesson is to get a, a getting scaling too quick, uh, getting ahead of yourself and not sensitizing the business, right? Committing all in on one thing way too aggressively, way too soon at the early stages of a business. And it is a learning lesson for sure. Right now, my my game plan is, is that as we scale, we're going to go the variable route. Yes, you make less in margins, but you're more downside protected at the end of the day as well. And after we hit a certain threshold in revenue, right? Because we're a seven-figure business, but barely. We're making a little bit above seven figures. It's not like we're making like three, four, five million. That's a different yeah. story, right? We're still a growing business who take who took advantage of the increase of the market. And so until we get to that multi-million uh, a year point, um, for us going to stay variable so we can yeah. kind of handle those changes and we don't get ourselves in the position because we spend tens of thousands of dollars that are wasted. That is not like marketing is not wasted because you could get that call in six months. Yeah. We spent money on things that are sunk, legitimately sunk cost. You cannot recover it, right? Yeah. And so that was one of the biggest learning lessons in a growing business that we had. Um, I think I was going to get into real estate loss, but I think that is that is <laughs> that is a better learning lesson to leave with your yeah. audience. <laughs> um, honestly, like um, I, I resonate strongly with you. Like my my fixed costs were not as as high as yours, right? Because we started way way later than you did, so we are a newer business. But when we started, we also scaled quite aggressively across multiple markets. Quite a number of our fixed employees were offshore employees. So we're edging close to about 10, about 10,000 a month. And then when the market sort of slowed down, same thing, you know, having to carry that cost. And for us, it was harder to scale back on that because when we were bringing on partners, the commitment was to do follow-ups for an extended period of time. So we had to keep following up 
for extended period of time, even when the market was coming down. So we carried that cost for a longer period. So it was it was definitely a learning lesson. And with just the magic compression, it was definitely something to think through with respect to how to scale moving forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, honestly, it's a good learning lesson, though. It hasn't deterred us from staying in the market. There's a lot of operators. I don't know if people remember, but there were so many wholesale operators within the last three years. And now most of them are gone. There's only a few of them that are still actively in the market. Most of them who are in your, I don't know, Deji, I don't know how long I'm going to keep this podcast. There's not many wholesalers now. <laughs> There's only a few who are operating. Okay, yeah, you you had this podcast two years ago. You'd have a guest every day, every day, five days, you know, of the, of the year. But now things have changed for sure, and that's good. That's with any business. Every business and during COVID, you know, when COVID came, every service business had shit to eat because everything closed down. But yeah. our business shot up. Now this is our shit to eat, right? Like <laughs> our biz, our our industry has kind of turned over a little bit. Um, and services is picking back up, like the restaurants and stuff like that. Yep. It's just cycles. You have to get yeah. through it. It is what it is. But man, if this is as worse as it's gonna get, bring it on because we survived it. Right. Oh and man. Like, next time. I can't wait for the upside up. now. Oh, for yeah, sure, man. for sure. Yeah, I'm so amped for it. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Um, this was fantastic. So, if people want to get in touch with you, well, I know a lot of people already know how to get in touch with you, but for people who are just familiarizing themselves with you, how do they get in touch with you? They can connect with me on Instagram at Austin Yay Six. Um, I don't really use Facebook too much. Join the Rise Network Facebook page. Um, if you guys want to, you know, stick stay in touch with other investors, we have over seven thousand people on that group. You're going to be on our podcast sometime. I, I think we're scheduled for, I don't know, this week, next, next, week. Week, next yeah. week. Yeah. So uh, the audience can stay tuned for that. So check out Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast while you're at it too. And uh, that that's that's pretty much it. Cool, man. Cool. Perfect. And that's it, folks. You know, we hope everything you, you've learned today from the man, Austin, you know, has been super, super helpful. Um, as always, thank you for listening to the Deals Estate Hosting Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple, on Spotify, and be sure to hit that like and subscribe button. Until then, remember, a deal a day keeps scarcity at bay.